Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Robert Kerbeck, and he just published two days ago, it came out on Amazon, February 22nd, 2022, a book titled Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Finished it this morning. It's an excellent book. It's not Robert's first book. He's also written and published in 2019, a book titled Malibu Burning, the real story behind LA's most devastating wildfire. And on Amazon right now, it has 148 five-star reviews. And both of his books, his most recent book and that old book, also have audiobooks. So you can check that out. Uh, interestingly, this new book, uh, Ruse, has a blurb from Frank Abagnale. If you mm -hmm. know his name, he's the author of Catch Me If You Can, which was made into a movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, so, and, and and this book fits into that vein. Um, also, his last book, uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, called it the best kind of nonfiction, so visceral it feels like fiction. Uh, Robert Kerbeck is the founder of the Malibu Writers Circle, and his essays and short stories have been featured in numerous magazines and literary journals, including Narratively, Cimarron Review, and Los Angeles Magazine. His short story, Reconnected, was adapted into an award-winning film and has appeared at film festivals worldwide. He is a lifetime member of the Actor Studio and an award-winning actor. And his website is his full name. Robert Kerbeck is spelled K-E-R-B-E-C-K. And again, the book we're going to talk about today is Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. So Robert Kerbeck, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Well, thank you, William. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful introduction. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name or your earlier book, can you kind of talk about your literary career? I mean, you've had a story, very interesting trajectory of your career lives, but can you mm -hmm. talk about your writing career and what led you to write your first book and then this one, Ruse? Sure. Well, um, basically, we had the worst wildfire um, Los Angeles County has ever had in uh, November 2018. Um, half of Malibu burned to the ground. Um, my neighborhood, uh, 17 of 19 homes on my street burned to the ground. And uh, my wife and child and I fought the fire and saved our home. We have a Victorian house. Uh, it's all wood, you know, wood decks, wood balconies, wood coming out of wood. And if any house should have burned to the ground, our house should have burned to the ground. But we had been prepared because, you know, we knew we li lived in a wildfire area. And so we had fire pumps and we had equipment and we had this chemical FOS check um, and we sprayed that chemical on our house, on the foliage around our house and escaped, um, you know, kind of at the last possible moment. Um, uh, telephone poles uh, literally coming down in front of my car. Uh, a fire NATO came through, um, uh, you know, just about as horrific as you can you know, a moment as you can have in your life. You know, my child was watching me. And in one moment, I thought my child was going to watch me burn alive. Um, and so um, after the fire, after we escaped, um, uh, an editor from the, uh, from the New York Times reached out to me and, they, and, he, and he said, hey, I know you were on the Malibu Writer Circle in Malibu. And I, we know you had this terrible fire. Um, do you know any good fire stories? We're looking for a good fire story. And I said, well, funny, you should reach out because, you know, we barely survived. I had some video that was really incredible. And at the time, my wife's friend um, worked for the Los Angeles Times, and she got wind of me um, being solicited by the New York Times, and she was not happy about it at all. And she said, why are you writing this piece for the New York Times? You have to write it for us for the Los Angeles Times. And so I did. 
And um, probably the only time in my career, the New York Times and the LA Times will be buying for my work. Um, but that's what happened. And I wrote this piece for the Los Angeles Times. A publisher read it and said, boy, we'd really like a book on wildfires. And that was what inspired me to start writing the book. Right. And that was an amazing event. Like I was in L.A. at the time and it looked like just this huge pillar of smoke up in Malibu. And it literally crossed PCH. That fire came yeah. from the valley over the hill. And like you could literally see some of the shrubs on the beach burn. Like that's how intense it was. So, yeah, no, very and, fortunate and I to make it through. Yeah. yeah. And I have a chapter in the book where literally the only thing that stopped the fire was the Pacific Ocean. Um, literally, there was foliage where the 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 fire burned to the high tide line and the ocean stopped the fire. Right. Um, and of course, you know, as, as your listeners know, you know, we've been in, we've been in this era of massive wildfires, right. And the wildfires are getting worse and worse and worse. And so one of the things I wanted to do with this book is not only did I want to tell my fire story, but each chapter is the story from um, a different person's perspective, what they went through that day. So we see firefighters, we see, um, you know, the city manager, we see uh, an elderly couple, two 80 year olds uh, saving their home with buckets in their feet. Um, you know, we see people losing their homes. We see people saving entire neighborhoods by themselves with no help, no help from the fire department. Um, and so all of these different stories kind of come together to show um, not only how how horrific these fires have become, but but they show this community coming together. You know, so many people, they think of Malibu as this incredibly rich area and everybody's so rich and they're only famous actors. And really Malibu, you know, was a frontier town until not that long ago. Um, and um, it's um, a kind of a surprisingly eclectic mix of, you know, students, broke surfers, um, elderly people that have lived here for 50 years, they could never afford to, to buy here anymore, but they've had their homes for so long. They're retired firefighters, retired sheriffs, retired teachers, and a lot of people don't know that. And it was those people that kind of came together because the bureaucracy really failed, as often happens in catastrophes, and there was really no help for days. And so people were on their own. And so people would, you know, get food to people. They would get medicine to people. They would get generators to people because obviously there was no power. Um, and so even though the event itself was terrible, the coming together of the community was really beautiful. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. I would drove by there after the fire. There was a rain that happened subsequent that to that. And I looked up on the hills and it was stripped bare. Like that's how intense yeah. the flames were. I was like, this yeah. looks like a... Uh, Dead, like it went back to its normal primeval state. It was really yes, that's incredible. right. Yeah, yeah. We have a little uh, canyon I'm I'm looking at out now um, that you know kind of goes down our property and it goes down to the street below us. Well, we've lived here for 20 years. I'd never ever gone down because the brush is so thick you can't get through it. And after the fire, there was this nice little trail, easy trail to just walk right down because there was nothing that remained. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I'd actually been in, up in the valley where it started. You could see it came across the freeway and you could just went up over the hills and just ate everything. Really, I'm, I really would like to read that book, too. I mean, it looks like a perfect book to read for that story. But uh, so that was kind of your first book. But you had also had kind of a more literary kind of uh, career with literary journals, right? Before that? Yeah. Well, you know, I as you know, in, in the Ruse book, I kind of, you know, uh, pivot from career to career. You know, I start out selling cars for my father. Um, then I become an actor. 
then I stumble into this crazy career as a corporate spy. And then when that all blew up, um, I uh, circled back to writing, um, you know, which sort of was the first thing I did. I was an English major in college, but as a young man, I couldn't sit still long enough to write. And I got involved with the theater and, and, and that career kind of took me, you know, uh, down the road. And, um, and then later in life, I circled back to writing. I always loved short stories. I started writing short stories. They got started getting published. I wrote a couple of essays. Um, they they started getting published, and um, you know I, I had started the Ruse book actually some time ago. And then of course when the fire came, that was such a, a traumatic event that I I knew I had to write about it, and I also knew I wanted to write a story to help other people understand what they could do to give their home a fighting chance in a wildfire because these wildfires are now you know, in Colorado, they're in Washington, they're in Oregon, they're in uh, Vancouver, in British Columbia, Australia, you know, there are these fires are everywhere. And so, you know, we saved our home in, in the in the face of the worst wildfire in Los Angeles history. And, and, uh, and it's like I said, it's a Victorian home, it should have burned to the ground. So I think homeowners can do things to save their homes. So I wrote that book. And then after that book, um, I came back to this Ruse book um, and I had always wanted to write this story, um, but I kind of had to wait a certain amount of time for the statute of limitations to run out on whatever potential crimes I'd committed. And um, I read an early chapter of the writer's conference and people were just blown away by the world of corporate spying. People didn't know it existed. You know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese. We know the Chinese spy on the Russians. We Most people had no idea that major American corporations are spending tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. Yeah, and man. so when I, when I started to get that feedback from people that they literally, you know, their jaws were dropping and they just couldn't believe my stories, that was when I said, okay, I, I've got to write it. Now's the time. There's been enough time has passed. And so I finished that book. And as you know, it, it came out uh, two days ago. Oh, congratulations. And so, I mean, you kind of came out of, you could have gone the route of your father, your family's business was selling cars in Philly, right? But uh, yeah, you kind of took a different path. Well, it's it's quite ironic. You know, my the name Kerbeck, if you Google Kerbeck, Kerbeck Cars, um, you know, they're some of the largest car dealers in the country and they, there's Kerbeck Maserati and Kerbeck Lamborghini and Kerbeck Corvette and Kerbeck Cadillac. And my great grandfather came over from Armenia in the late 1800s and he sold horse carriages before automobiles were invented. And when cars started coming around, he saw the writing on the wall and he pivoted, which I think is a Kerbeck family trait, and he pivoted to selling cars. And so the uh, Kerbecks have been selling cars since 1899. And, you know, my grandfather sold cars, my father sold cars, and I was expected to take over the family business and sell cars. And when I graduated from college, I went to work for my father and uh, it just wasn't for me. You know, the, the kind of trickery and dishonesty of car sales, I just wasn't really comfortable with. And I really wanted to act. And so I went to New York to be an actor and of course, the irony is that I needed a survival job and who stumbles into a job as a corporate spy. But that's exactly what I did. And a job that ended up being, of course, far more dishonest than uh, working for my father in the car business. So you probably had some or had some familial skill at just talking to people. And you think do you think that's what translated into this 
corporate espionage position? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a it's a rare individual that can lie on the phone and trick people inside major American and global international corporations into telling me things that they definitely should not tell me, right? Um, you know, data, information, um, you know, facts, figures, you know, who's good, who's the top person in this department, who the top traders are on a on a desk, who has the biggest book of business, you know, what are the acquisition plans, what are the uh, expansion plans, you know, you know, are they hiring, are they fine, you know, all of these different things, basically the playbook on a corporation, that's what my uh, clients would hire me to find out on their competitors. And so it requires kind of an unusual skill set. Obviously, you've got to be, you know, fast on your feet. Um, you've got to have the gift of gab. Um, but you also have to have a bit of a business sense, which I got from my family, right? And that that combination of the the acting skills, but the biz and the business skills, I think that combined into making me, you know, really good at spying. Right. And this, so you took this job because you could go to auditions whenever you wanted. So it was flexible. Yeah. And well, it was and, pretty, yeah. Yeah, well, think about it. You know, nowadays because of COVID, everybody works from home, right? But you know, until until COVID, you know, hardly anybody could work from home, right? You had to go to an office, and so to have a job you could do from home on the phone, set your own hours, um, do it in between auditions. It was just you know that was what every actor was hoping for, right? And 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 yet this job was very very difficult to do. And even though every friend I had heard about what I was doing, wanted to learn, wanted to try. Um, and the ones that I would kind of take in the circle of trust and I'd bring them in, none of them ever were able to do it. It was just it, too difficult, too challenging. Um, because it's, like I said, it's a rare individual that can can pull off this kind of spying. Right. So it's like a high, super high tuner, turnover rate, pre-internet. So not as much data is flowing around. So the real right. skill, you talk about these different pitches you have. Skillfully, right, yeah, sussing yeah. out different elements, departments, and businesses. Yeah, yeah. What I describe is, you know, I was LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented, right? Uh, you know, think about it. Right back in the day, all of this information was private information. Who worked at a company? Who ran a team? Who was on the team? Exactly what the team did. What what you know? Who were their clients? Who were the top people on the team? How much did the people make that worked on the team? Right? What were the salaries of all the individuals? You know, all of this information, much of which has now become public information, back then was entirely private. And to give you an example of how valuable this information was, in one example, um, right before the crash of 2008, there was a team of eight traders at Morgan Stanley that did a trade that made the firm $1 billion. And my client, a rival of Morgan Stanley, tasked me with finding out the names of these eight individuals on this team. Now, you would think, well, how hard could that be to find out these names? Well, I can tell you it was nearly impossible. These groups were so locked down. They were so protected by the corporations. And yet I found the names of the eight members of the team. And then the question is, well, what was that worth to your client? And I say some significant fraction of $1 billion. Because if you can poach the number two person on that team or the number three person on that team, they can replicate that trade for now their new client. 
right? And so those th that kind of information was, you know, unbelievably valuable to, you know, any corporation. And in this example, a Wall Street firm. But it was also true with the technology industry too, right? You know, if there's a top designer working on a, a new product and I'm able to determine who that designer is working on this cutting edge product, and then my client is able to poach or steal that individual because now they found out this person's the person in charge of this new secret product. Imagine how valuable that is. And remember also back in the day, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the NDAs and the contracts, they, they weren't as, you know, um, you know, maybe as uh, um, strict or strenuous as they might be today um, for a corporation to prevent that from happening, right? You know, right. 20 years you know, ago, you know, it was a lot easier for somebody to kind of pick up and leave. You know, now there are a lot more, um, you know, uh, there's a lot more protocols in place so that corporations can protect themselves a little bit better. Right. So you were selling money to basically headhunters. So these guys would make money on funds for you know, getting a new hire to a different company or something like that. That was well. The the, the information that I would extract from corporations uh, sometimes was used by headhunters, okay. um, and then sometimes was used by the corporations directly. It would depend on whether the focus of the information I was getting was uh, was talent related, like who was at a firm, who was good at a firm, or whether it was related to what the firm was actually doing in terms of their business, their structure, you know, their headcount, their expansions, their acquisitions. So depending on, you know, who the end user was, the information that I would, what I would extract would be different. Gotcha. And you, uh, you started out kind of just as kind of a hourly wage earner, but worked your way up into much more significant, uh, funds or salary. Yeah. So when I started, there was a woman, she had a firm. I stumbled into this firm because my college roommate's brother was doing the job. He got me an interview. He wouldn't tell me what they did. I went up and interviewed with the woman. She never told me what they did. I walked out of there. She just asked me a bunch of questions about my family history and my father, which kind of threw me off. I'm like, why is she asking me about my father and the car business? And I left thinking, well, I, I didn't get that job. And my buddy called me and said, you know, you're hired. And I said, oh, wow, you know, I, I must really have done well. And she said, no, she hires everyone because no one works out. And um, so I went to work. Um, and in the beginning, the, the the ploys that we used were relatively unsophisticated, right? They weren't very advanced. You know, we would call and say, oh, we're a student working on a paper. Can you please help us? And, you know, most times people would hang up the phone or at first they'd laugh at us, then they'd hang up the phone. And being a competitive guy, I started to go, well, you know, I need to develop some sort of ploy that would really force these individuals at corporations. And remember, these are major corporations and the individuals answering the phone. They've gone to the best schools in the country. You know, many times I'm talking to executives that have Harvard MBAs. They're making millions, if not tens of millions of dollars a year. And I'm expecting them to tell me this private company information. I've got to have a pretty good story to pull that off. And so we started experimenting with these different ploys. And as time went on, these ploys got more and more intense and, of course, more and more dangerous. Um, and, of course, eventually they brought us into the crosshairs of the authorities. And uh, that was a pretty scary time. Right. They, they thought you were or your associate was Kevin Mitnick. I just did a show about. So I found that found that pretty amusing to see that pop up in your book. 
Right. And uh, Kevin at the time was basically the most famous hacker in the world. And they thought we were Kevin. Um, they thought we were trying to shut down the Internet, which was just being started. Um, and um, like I said, you know, uh, and then Kevin, of course, got arrested as a domestic terrorist put in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. And trust me, that was something that I did not want to have happen. <laughs> right, but he was he was doing the same type of thing as you were, social exactly engineering, right? He yes, was, oh, exactly the same. For different ends. For, he right. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like and, getting and, people, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he was doing it theoretically for no money. You know, he was just doing it for the thrill of the hunt, the thrill of the hack. You know, we were actually getting paid, which, of course, made me think, my God, if they arrested Kevin as a domestic terrorist and put him in a, a solitary confinement for 23 hours, what are they going to do to us? Right. I mean, you probably could have gotten charged from the authorities for wire fraud, fraud. Um, there's some serious things. And there's probably civil actions, too, if somebody really wanted to kind of invasion of privacy charge or something like yes that. absolutely something. absolutely yeah no yeah. uh there's no doubt um and all of those you know the charge of wire fraud is significant there's yeah, financial penalties yeah. yeah it's 10 years right a uh, 10 years uh wire fraud with the financial institutions 10 years um and and you know as you know from reading the book you know my i've gotten past that 10 year part so that's why i i can write the book now well it's kind of funny times of data's change when you are doing this the internet now is so much different like it yeah. just was a totally different environment and the cutthroat wall street super competitive right. but i will say this the spying that i did continues unabated today because there is still so much information that is private. So, for example, LinkedIn, right? You know, all of the best people, a, a very large percentage of them are not even on LinkedIn, right? They're killing it at the firms uh, where they're working. They're making tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't want to be on LinkedIn. They don't want to be inundated with requests from headhunters. Um, and even if they are on LinkedIn, they haven't updated their profile. They're at a new firm. They, you know, and so finding these individuals, getting their cell phone numbers so that they can be contacted, right? Because nowadays, so many of these companies, they don't even have a phone number you can call, right? Uh, or if you call their phone number, you won't even be patched into an individual unless they'll say, okay, who is this? What is your purpose in calling? Okay. We're going to send the message, and if they want to take your call, they'll call you back, right? right? So a lot of phone systems have been put in place to prevent people, you know, from accessing their talent because corporations have recognized, think about it, you know, you lose one of your top people on a team, it could be a serious blow to a company's bottom line, not only in terms of the revenue, but they've got to, you know, replace that person. They've got to train somebody else. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's a really a big deal. And so these corporations have started to get wise to we have to protect our people. And here are some things we can put in place to make it harder for our individuals to be contacted, which is why getting these cell phone numbers is so incredibly valuable. And that's something that I really excelled in doing as well, which was getting cell phone numbers um, so that my client could contact people privately. Right. And you were kind of put into a third party position so that the client was had you distance outside of their umbrella. Right. So they you Correct. all these corporate espionage, they always were at arm's length of the always. actual. Right. So always. always. So, I mean, I personally, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, Wall Street 
Silicon Valley, uh, pharmaceutical industry. Oh, no, no, no. We would never do any of this. Oh, no, 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 no. Never. No, no, no. And I'm here to tell you that I have presented my data, my stolen data to individuals that today are one step from being the CEOs of some of the largest corporations in America. Right. So but they have to have plausible deniability that they're doing this. Right. And the way they do that is they outsource this work to firms or they outsource it to their headhunters, their executive recruiting firms who then hire the spies for them. Right. I heard some story about Steve Jobs and his creative teams. He was hyper paranoid. And he would not divulge their names. He wouldn't put, I, I can't remember the full story. He wouldn't put their names in the directory. He wanted to maintain the, 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 you know, people who are working on the iPad all together. So nobody would ever steal them because it was yeah. such an issue in Silicon Valley. So yeah. it's there. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Yeah. And, they, yeah. and the and commissions just, are huge. Yeah. And that's, I just wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle. It's funny you mentioned Apple. Um, and I wrote an op-ed uh, for the Chronicle about the um, uh, you know corporate intelligence, corporate espionage work that I did in Silicon Valley, because you know I would say Wall Street and Silicon Valley were the two most competitive and cutthroat industries uh, in which I worked um, because the stakes were so high, the dollars were so high. Right? right. Um, imagine if you could poach the guy on Steve Jobs' team that was working on the iPad in the early stages of the iPad. Right. It's an um, incredible amount of money, yeah. just yeah. off the charts. Like you're yeah. talking about billions, billions of dollars. So yes, the right. commissions that filter through, like you originally started just a computer and a desk, but the person who is actually the corporate espionage head, the amount of value that they're obtaining is very significant. I mean, you were making, when you advanced, you made real money. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, I, I started out, I got $8 an hour. It was just a survival job. Uh, it was just to pay the bills because I was going to be a big, uh, you know, movie star. And as you know, in the book, I was quite close to becoming a movie star. And I did major uh, um, uh, shows in New York. I got rave reviews in the New York Times and the New Yorker. Um, then I did, you know, major roles in TV shows. And I worked opposite, you know, George Clooney and Callista Flockhart and, um, you know, James Gandolfini and, uh, you know, really, really uh, well-known um, uh, actors and actresses. Um, and um, never really took the corporate espionage that seriously. It was just a survival job. Um, but then all of a sudden, as I got into my 30s, my acting career kind of waned. And I booked a bunch of pilots. None of the pilots ever got made into series. I kind of lost my um, enthusiasm for it. And at that same time, that was kind of the beginning of the, the aughts. Um, and that was the run up to the crash of 2008 when it was kind of like boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, this intelligence started to become more and more valuable. It, it clearly was worth more and more money. You know, I started getting calls from people. I didn't even know how they were finding me. Um, and yeah, basically I, there was a period of time where I kind of crossed over to the dark side and just did this job and eventually was making millions of dollars a, a year doing it. And that, those era, that era before 2008 was crazy. Like yeah. there was money floating around. You talk about a lot of the stuff, CDSs and all these securities that people were making huge amounts of money for. Right. So those people well, were very, yeah. right. And almost all the characters in the big short, 
I had their names on my research. <laughs> they were they were names that I obtained in my espionage projects and was giving to other people. And, you know, so it's so funny when the movie came out, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this person. Oh, yeah, I know that person. I know where they were this year. I know what firm they were at before that. Because, again, before LinkedIn, you know, I, I could track people's careers. I could tell you where they were here, when they were here, when they moved, who they moved with, you know, um, and all of that information, again, you know, in this pre kind of LinkedIn era, you know, LinkedIn really took off after the crash. But before 2008, 2009, you know, it, it, the only way to get this information was to hire someone like me. Yeah. So high, super high demand, tons of money going around. People were making millions, if not billions, during all the, that mortgage fiasco. Like all yeah. those documents were fake. Like there was right. so, so much of that stuff was. Uh, right. Well, and like, I, I talk about that in the book that it's all kind of a giant ruse. You know, it was like everybody was rusing everybody. <laughs> you know, the homeowners lied on their application. The the lenders, you know, they lied uh, when they sold the mortgages to the, you know, to the, the Wall Street banks. The Wall Street banks lie, lied to the credit ratings agencies. You know, everybody was lying. It was just this uh -huh. giant house of cards. And then, of course, when it came down, it, it it nearly destroyed or and it really did destroy the global economy. You know, it was really quite did. some time. I, I was working for Countrywide for a time there in the mid ah. before 2008. And when they sold that to uh, Bank of America, I go, have they paid that much money for that? This whole yeah. this whole company is based upon, you know, confetti. Yeah. So actually, you know, yeah, that was an interesting time. So I was reading through your book, kind of going back, having some darkness, nostalgia, like some of those. Uh, the lifestyle was very. New York, actually, kind of New York, you know, Gordon Gecko-ish, even out in California. Um, do you have Do you have time to read a little bit from the book? Do you have any readings sure, you'd sure. like to? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll read a little section from uh, the early part of the book. I think it's kind of fun. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, you know, I when I would get asked by people at a party, you know, what I did, you know, maybe if I had had a drink, I might say corporate intelligence. And then if somebody asked me, well, what does that mean? I'd say, well, if I told you, I'd have to take you out back and kill you, you know, and that would be the end of it. But with my, you know, friends, kind of close friends, you know, they, they could see I was starting to make money. So I would tell them, you know, what I did. And of course, as I said earlier, then they all were interested and they tried to, to do the job. But um, this is from chapter one and it's called The Biggest Lie. If I told you that you could make millions of dollars a year and all you had to do was lie on the phone all day to earn it. Would you do it? Could you do it? You'd probably start by asking if it was illegal. And if so, how illegal? Good for you. You have some kind of conscience. Note that as I flatter you, I'm not answering your question. Or maybe you think, shit, what's the harm in finagling a few names out of corporations anyway? After all, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo and the like don't care about us. They've shown repeatedly and remorselessly that they're not terribly concerned about bilking consumers or tanking the global economy. Who cares if they get dinged a little? While you're pondering that, I'll point out that the job has some serious perks beyond the money. For one thing, you can ruse from anywhere in the world, your car, the beach, your bed or basement or backyard surf shack, Monte Carlo, the rainforests of Costa Rica, over the years, I've rused from London, Paris, the QE2, those phone calls in the middle of the Atlantic are expensive, Hawaii, even the boardrooms of Wall Street firms while waiting to meet with their CEOs. All you need is a phone, and you can ruse as much or as little as you like. 
It's up to you. It was it's just amazing. Like you were kind of like that home office person before, like you said, this kind of COVID, the home office was existed. And you you did a lot of stuff from like a, your backyard kind of tool shed, right? Yeah, I have a converted tool shed that that's where I applied my craft. And uh, look, there were times I was, you know, again, back in the day, I was on vacation or I was, you know, in a car with a friend. And I'd say, hey, there's a phone booth over there. Pull over. I'd whip out my MCI calling card, make a couple of calls, get some names and pay for the trip, you know, uh, on the side of the on the side of the freeway. Um, you know, that, that, that's how, you know, you know, user friendly the job was, which is why everybody wanted to try to do it. Right. And I mean, the, the survival rate in the rusing business was what one out of a hundred, like you had select people that you knew from New York and even the ones kind of, you had a couple in LA, right? Or one. Yeah. You know, I think of all the people that I tried to train really only one worked out as as a good spy there were a couple other people that were able to get basic information but in terms of getting kind of that that real value information that clients paid top dollar for there was only one guy uh, that i trained who turned out to be as as good as i was and you know one of the funny things about the job is when i started doing it uh a woman hired me and she had a firm and she only hired women. She thought that only women could do the job. Um, you know, back in the day, Wall Street was still predominantly male. And so the women spies kind of utilized that and kind of played on that to their advantage. And she didn't think, you know, the woman that, who, that, that hired me, she didn't think that men could do the job. And um, my buddy who got me the job, he was the first man she ever hired. And then and then she hired me. And then after us, she only hired women again. So it was kind of interesting in terms of the gender roles that um, most of the spies were women. Fascinating. I didn't know that. And how much, so what's the, what was the turnover rate? How many people went through before they stayed like a hundred to one? Like how many yeah, maybe, even, maybe even more, maybe wow. even more. Right. Yeah. Maybe even more. I mean, you know, I know I trained, tried to train, you know, you know, just so many people to do the job. Um, and I never got anybody. Um, the, the one, just that one friend uh, was able to do the job. Um, and he uh, is still doing it to this day. Really? Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. And we will not mention his name out of respect. <laughs> Very good. Do you want to read another reading before we wrap this up? We're at about 34 minutes. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I, th I think okay. that's great. I, you know, I, mean, I, I re really appreciate it, and I hope people check it out. I mean, I think it's a world that no one has seen before in a book, um, and there's a TV show in the works. Oh, really? Um, Congratulations. Yeah, yeah thank that's you. Great. Yeah. Very exciting. It's an excellent book. I really was smiling and uh, nodding along and kind of had some moments there of like the corporate intrigue and cutthroat behavior too. I remember that. So I uh, I really kind of brought back a lot of memories. Some good, some not good. But uh, <laughs> also we barely even talked about your entertainment career. I mean, you had some incredible stuff. OJ, oh. uh, just all these uh, little vignettes that are, are are in the book are really amazing too. So yeah, I mean, it's um, kind of like I had I had a little bit of like the Forrest Gump career of an actor where you know I'm working with OJ the week before the double murders, and then I'm working with Kevin Spacey who's sexually harassing me, and I work with George Clooney right before he blows up and becomes famous. It was a you know kind of a real little Forrest Gump thing with my acting career. And Gandolfini right before he yeah James got yeah, surprised yeah. just all these yeah. people that you knew, and even the actor studio is a really a fascinating story because you knew that guy. At the real formation before oh. 
The actor's yeah, Jim, studio became Jim, what was his name? Jim Lipton. Yeah, Jim, Jim Lipton. Lipton. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, and he created that show on Bravo inside the actor's studio. And the actor's studio was about to go broke. And um, and Jim and I became friends. And kind of through me, he got information. Uh, you know, he was a, a little He's bit a of a ruser. spy himself. Yeah, a yeah, little bit of a, a ruser himself. Ruser. Yeah, he was. I think and, he, uh, wasn't he, and he a, a, a pimp or a... a... You know, I, I don't know what what his, what his background was. He was he like I said, he was kind of a mysterious spy-like character too. Uh, he died recently, um, but he really did an amazing job on that program. And you know, Saturday Night Live and Will Ferrell they they spoofed him, and you know, he really uh, was quite a character. But that actor studio became kind of a must-watch for a lot of people in that career, didn't it? I mean, so it wasn't oh, yeah. there. You yeah. were there at the beginning. Still, you're still a member of the actor studio, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And you were able to kind of come back around. Your short stories propelled you back to kind of into doing what you like to do, which is acting, right? So this show reconnected. Yeah, you know, that was, I only did that because the short story, it was a father and son story. And um, when the director was casting, I asked if my son could read for the part of the boy in it. And she said, sure. And and he read and she said, you know, I think he's great. I'd like to hire him. My only condition is if I hire him, you have to play the father. And I said, no, 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 no. I haven't acted in 15 years. I don't want to ruin my own movie. Um, but my son begged me to do it. So I did it. And it turned out great. I couldn't believe how, you know, it just was a great experience working with your own child. The director was fantastic. She's gone on now. She has a huge television directing career, SJ Main. She's directing, you know, ep you know major TV all the time. And, cool. um, and then I was nominated at a couple of film festivals for Best Actor, which was pretty funny because I hadn't acted for 10 years. Um, you know, which which shows to go, you know, your listeners out there, you know, might be time to circle back to that career, you know, maybe, right. you know, you know, you know, get out the hockey skates or, you know, the, you know, get the basketball out and may, maybe it's not too late to make your comeback. It's true. You know, we these days, everybody has about three or four or five careers in their lives. But yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we no. wrap it up? No. And the best really, place. Really a pleasure. Yeah. Likewise. It's great. to It's great to read the book. I loved reading this book. Where's the best place to get Ruse? You know, I always tell people your local bookstore um, because um, if you buy the ruse at your local bookstore, then it makes them order more copies of it. And then maybe the bookseller goes, wow, I'm selling a bunch of copies of this. I'm going to read it now. And I'm going to write a little note because I really like this book. And then people come in and they see this recommended note. And so the local bookstore and of course, coming out of uh, COVID, you know, uh, local businesses have been hammered, right? You know, Amazon's done great, but uh, local businesses have been hammered. So I think anything right now that you can do to help out, and not just bookstores, but any local business, I think it's important. Yeah, great point. And if people want to reach out to you, your website has a lot of information, books, kind of your career, a lot of stuff at robertkerbeck.com, correct? Yes. And I will put that link in the show notes. And again, the book that we talked about today was Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street by Robert Kerbeck, just published February 22nd, 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. All right, stay there.